This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So this segment is all about consumer proposals and the myths, Mm -hmm. and the myths that come along with them. Um, Because there are some. There's some stuff that people don't understand. I mean, I still don't understand all of it, and Mm -hmm. we've been talking about it for a while. So I think this is great that we're doing this segment. Yeah, and, and Elaine, I often you know joke a little bit. It's only a half joke. You know, my life's work right now is making people aware of this option because the people that need to know about it most are typically the people that have no idea that this even exists. And sometimes people have a bit of an inkling. Oh, I've heard about this proposal thing, but you know what? That just couldn't apply to my circumstance. So they don't you know investigate it any further. Right. So I think today's discussion. Let's hit it. You know, I think there's about five key myths that people tend to have, and maybe there's others our listeners will tell us about. But I think this will go a long way to kind of filling in the detail about you know what is this thing called the proposal um, and how could it potentially help me get out of debt without going into a bankruptcy. Okay, let's start. Let's start at the start. Mm-hmm. Let's start at the beginning. Um, let I'll let you explain what a consumer proposal is. Yeah, so in the simplest terms, Elaine, a consumer proposal, it's a legal consolidation arrangement. So it's where you put all of your debts together, but two big differences from a regular debt consolidation. You know, one is you don't have to pay back the full amount of the debt. So we figure out as a trustee, we sit down and we say, well, what can you reasonably afford to pay back? And it's got to be something, you know, reasonable to the creditors as well. But, you know, often it's 20% of the debt, 30%, maybe half, you know, if you've got some pretty good income, but very rarely is it close to the full amount of the debt. So it's a consolidation where you pay back what you can afford on the debt. And then the second really important thing is, you know, you don't pay a reduced interest rate. You don't pay, you know, a prime plus whatever interest rate. You literally pay zero interest rate. So most people, when they come in to see me, the thing that really riles them every month is just seeing, oh my God, another 20% of interest annually was added to my debts. Like I feel like I'm just treading water. I'm paying $200 down and $190 is just going to interest. It's going to be there the next month. So once you file a consumer proposal, the target stops moving away from you. The interest stops getting added and the target is a lot closer to begin with because it's something you can actually afford to pay off. Yeah. So to give, you know, a real life example yes, for our, for our listeners that. here, you know, and these are numbers I see every day of the week here at Sands and Associates, you know, someone owing $20,000 of debt, which sounds like a lot, but it's not that difficult to end up in that situation if a couple of tough things happen to you. But someone at $20,000 of debt, if they were to offer a consumer proposal uh, to repay about 30% of that debt or about $6,000, that's generally going to be accepted. And that works out to a monthly payment of $165 a month over 36 months. And that doesn't include any of the interest. If the interest thing is the thing that bugs you the most about it, it doesn't. It, it's not. It's it's not a part of that. Well, and what's interesting here, Elaine, too, is if you were actually look at what's the minimum payment this person's making each month and how much interest are they paying, the whole proposal cost is less than the interest on the debts. So really, it's something that the person can typically afford. It gives them, you know, a sense of pride too, saying, you know what, I, I stared down this debt problem and I didn't go bankrupt. I did what I could to pay back what I could afford. And if you're thinking, well, you know what, that just sounds 
far too good to be mm-hmm. true. Yeah. And you run into that all the time. Oh, yeah. And, and typically, as anyone who listens to this show knows, I'm a deep skeptic about things that are offered. I want, you know, show me the proofs in the pudding. And, you know, the proof in the pudding is that there's about 60, 70,000 consumer proposals every year in Canada that are filed, that are accepted by creditors. They're legitimate. Um, there's nothing too good to be true, even though they seem that way. They are codified in federal law. It's an option. You don't know about it because essentially your creditors don't want you to know about it. Yes. Okay, so consumer proposal, and then there's bankruptcy. Yeah. Are they, how similar are they? Well, or how the, different are they? That's the first myth. And, you know, sometimes people come in and say, oh, I've heard about this proposal thing. That's just the same as bankruptcy, isn't it? Well, the answer is no. So first off, it's absolutely not a bankruptcy. The legal state of bankruptcy is something very defined in legislation, and this is not that. So if you do a consumer proposal, and if you're asked later on in life, have you ever filed a personal bankruptcy? You answer no to that question 10 out of 10 times. You absolutely did not. Now, where there are some similarities is both of these proceedings, are only available through a licensed insolvency trustee, which is ourselves here at Sands and Associates. Previous to a couple years ago, licensed insolvency trustees were called bankruptcy trustees. So when someone is speaking kind of quickly saying, oh, you did a proposal with a bankruptcy trustee, it must be a bankruptcy. It's not. A consumer proposal doesn't reflect as a bankruptcy. It doesn't last as long on your credit. It's not as severe. Um, as a bankruptcy would be. And that's the other thing I want to make sure that that, y- that we add, that only licensed insolvency mm-hmm. trustees can do this work. Yeah. I have people, Nobody else can. I have people coming in sometimes telling me they're already in a consumer proposal. And I'm like, well, that's surprising. What trustee are you working with? Oh, it's this credit counselor I speak to on the phone. I'm like, well, you're not in a consumer proposal. I've seen that term co-opted a couple of times over, unfortunately. Unless you're dealing with a trustee, um, you don't have a consumer proposal, unfortunately. Now, you also included that lots of folks are afraid of bankruptcy because they think they're going to lose everything. Yeah. And that the process that you read about it in the newspaper or in the back yeah. in the ads or the, you know, the old want ad section, so-and-so mm-hmm. declares declared bankruptcy. Yeah, so there's an element of truth to that. You know, it's maybe 1% of bankruptcy cases have to go in the newspaper, so almost all of them don't, but it's 0% of consumer proposals. So there's never a consumer proposal that's going to get publicized in the newspaper. Uh, what people are really scared about in bankruptcy quite often is that they're going to lose everything. You know, they think they're going to lose all of their assets, and most of the time they don't. Is anyone who's listened to this show for a while knows most people who go through bankruptcy keep what little things they had to begin with, but there are some things that they might lose. You know, if they had an RRSP for their child, for example, there's no exemption for that. If you go into bankruptcy, you would tend to lose that RESP, but if you do a consumer proposal, you're able to keep all of your assets. So a consumer proposal can typically allow you to preserve things that you might have to lose if you filed for bankruptcy. Okay. Um, what about length of time that it takes to either do or to, or to live through? Mm-hmm. And what's it going to cost me? Yeah. So these are all good questions. So in terms of the length of time, so I've seen some misinformation online saying, you know, proposals take at least five years to complete. And it's kind of the opposite of that. There's a maximum term of five years on a consumer proposal. So the way a consumer proposal works is we sit down and we think about, okay, what can you reasonably afford to pay off on the debt? We look at the budget and find something that fits. And then we have to figure out what's an acceptable return to your creditors. You know, usually in the range of 20 to 40% of the debt is pretty good. 
and then we divide that over monthly payments. So if we said, you know, on the $20,000 example, we can reduce that down to $6,000, you know, the maximum term on that is five years. So you could do $100 a month over 60 months if you wanted to. In my client's case, they wanted to do it a little bit more quickly. So they did $165 a month over 36 months. So the benefit with a proposal is you can actually pay it off as quick as you're able to. So there's no minimum term on a proposal. Um, If things go great, you get, you know, a bonus at work or extra raise or things like that, make extra payments on the proposal and get it put behind you. But the maximum term it could ever be is five years. Okay. And is there a sort of, is there an average that you have in your knowledge, your experience? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely. About 24 to 48 months is is definitely the sweet spot. So, you know, a lot of people, even if they file a proposal thinking it's going to take them 60 months, suddenly when they've got, you know, a lot more hope on dealing with their debts, they pay things off far more quickly than that. Most filings are in there about, you know, the three to four year range. Now you also asked me about costs, Elaine, and this is something I'm thrilled to talk about because again, if you look online, sometimes you'll see some misinformation saying that there's some upfront costs to file a proposal. You know, a trustee wants certain amounts deposited before they'll even look at you and that's just not true. Okay, so, so how does it work? Yeah, so what what happens in a proposal is when we figure out what you can afford to pay back, the trustee gets paid out of that amount. So if it was the $20,000 debt that we're going to do a proposal down to $6,000, that's all the person's going to pay back is the $6,000. They're not going to pay a penny extra for the trustee. What happens out of that money is the trustee gets paid for trustee fees. There's some counseling sessions that need to be attended, so those are paid for as well. But there's never a separate charge that the person is given. Um, so whatever the monthly payment is the person can afford, one way to look at it is that actually Actually, the creditors are paying the trustees' cost. Before they get any money, they've got to pay the trustees' fees to basically hold on to the money and disperse it to them. Okay. In terms of upfront costs, uh, we file a ton of proposals every week at Sands & Associates. Quite often, people will make the first monthly payments, so, you know, maybe $165 or $100 in those examples. Or if someone's had their wages taken, they've been garnished, they just don't have the money, we'll often file the proposals with nothing down. And then once we have the deal approved, the person will just continue to make those payments. But there's no large barrier to trying this out, you know, your worst exposure typically is just one month's payment, which might be a couple hundred dollars. Okay, so it stay, if, it, if it's $20,000 and you negotiate at $165, then it stays that. Yeah. And you guys get paid, you get paid out of that exactly. and all the fees and all that stuff. So it really, there's, it's a no brainer. I would think from a consumer point of view, if they're waiting, you know, for the other shoe to drop the invoice for the, from the trustee, they're going to be waiting a whole long time. Um, there's going to be nothing separate the trustee ever charges. The whole point is to solve the problem, not to hit you with some, you know, mysterious charges that you weren't aware of until later on. Right. Or yeah. Uh, yeah. Those, the crazy charges that we know that yeah. does happen with, with other ways of, of dealing with debt. Um, mm. Did you want to talk about the consolidating your debts with the proposal saves you both on the short term and the long term? Uh, well, let's talk about the types of debts that we can do. Okay. I think that's a really big question that people have um, is because, you know, a lot of the times if people are dealing with certain debts, they tend to draw a box around things like, you know, tax debt um, or student loans, specifically amounts owing to the government, um, because typically there's nothing you can do about those unless you're working with the trustee. So when I have people come in and sit down with me and they tell me all about their credit cards and somebody's in the last five minutes of the meeting, I'm saying, oh, you up to date in your taxes? Oh, yeah, I filed five years worth and I owe them 10 grand also. I got to deal with this first 
so that I can pay the government off. And then I stopped the me. I'm like, no, what we're going to do is solve everything. We can roll the tax debt in. We can roll student loan debt in. Everything can be basically included in a, in a consumer proposal. Now, there's some exceptions, things, you know, like child support, spousal support, the things that you should never be able to reduce anyway. They can't be included. But just about any other consumer debt can be compromised as part of a consumer proposal. So two things I want to make sure that, that we mention. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, that you're a licensed insolvency trustee is the only one that can negotiate that, mm-hmm. what, dealing with all the, the government stuff. And... Um, and if I have uh, child payments, et cetera, that need to be paid, that gets that gets um, included in the sense that you know about it. So you exactly. help figure out what the best total is. Yeah, so that's a great point, Elaine. If we're looking at someone who ostensibly their income is $4,000, but they've got to pay $1,500 in child support, I deduct that right off the top before I even look at what their budget is for debt repayment. We're looking at you know a $2,500 budget after support as opposed to a $4,000 budget. So it is taken into account for sure. Absolutely. So the other thing is that uh, consumer proposals are not the same as credit counseling programs. And you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. And the other thing I want to make sure, because we just have about a minute left in yeah, this there's segment. there's so much to talk about there this is, stuff, you know. About yeah. ruining my credit. Can you kind yeah. of boil that down for us? Yeah, I think the simplest way to, to look at it is anytime you take any steps to restructure your debts that result in you not paying the debts off in full, your credit's going to take a pretty significant hit. Now, it's nothing you're not going to recover from. And one thing to keep in mind is a consumer proposal, it's not as severe as a bankruptcy, but it actually hurts your credit the exact same as if you just negotiated through a credit counselor and interest freeze. So you paying back all of your debts in full but getting the interest frozen, that gives you an R7 on your credit rating. You paying back the part of the debt you can afford on a consumer proposal, that's also an R7 on your credit rating. You can generally rebuild within a couple years of a consumer proposal. I know we're going to talk about that in future segments, but don't let the credit rating be a barrier to you taking action. In any event, you're going to help me figure all of that out when of I come course. and see you. Yes. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we talk about debt all the time on this show. That really is the focus for us. And we talk about all the different uh, ways of dealing with it. But is there a single place that you can start to mm-hmm. think about it or before I come in to see uh, somebody, you or someone in, in the offices, uh, is there a place that I can start or what do you tell people or what would yeah. you like people to do? So these are good questions, Elena. And I think for today, let's talk about, you know, what are the barriers that people feel that stop them from reaching out to help? You know, from, from me, I can say, yeah, I can help you once you've done these things. Um, but typically someone says, well, before I even call the trustee, you know, I don't know, I've got to do this first or that first. And sometimes they put these insurmountable barriers ahead of themselves. Let's talk about today. Here's a couple things that if someone thinks they've got a debt problem, they're not sure if they need a trustee's help, here's at least a couple things they can kind of sort out on their own to get ready to make that next call to get some help. Okay. Okay. So what's the first one? Well, number one, and this is not the sexiest thing in the world, but it's budgeting. And so many things in life come down to a budget. A budget's a story. A budget's a plan. A budget's an idea 
idea of how you're going to live your life. And if you don't have it, you know, many people say it's like driving your car just completely blind. You know, you're going to run into something, you're not going to see it coming, and there's going to be a catastrophic impact. So, you know, how do you keep a budget? Let's spend a couple of minutes talking about All that. All right. I don't know. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. But kind of like it's one of those scary things. I go, oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And there's ways you can over-engineer this and then you end up, you know, with something that's so complicated it doesn't give you really any output. But, you know, you could have a budget on a single sheet of paper, which is what we normally do with our clients. And a couple key components are all you need to get started. Okay. So, you know, first off, you need to tally up your take-home income. What so, comes in the door? Yeah, exactly. So if you're a standard salaried employee, okay, you get paid two, maybe three times in a month. If it's a three-pay month, you figure out what that is so you know what your income is. If you're self-employed, it's obviously a little bit more difficult, but maybe look at your last year's taxes and figure out an average amount per month. Um, but you've got to be careful when you're budgeting that, you know, things that might happen in the future, you know, hey, I think I'm going to get this tax refund this year because I always get it. Well, don't plan for that until you actually have it. It's, mm. it's a really critical thing not to spend money before you actually have it. Fair so enough. make sure when you're considering your income, it's chickens that have already hatched, so hmm. to speak, uh, not ones that, you know, may or may not hatch in the future. Okay. Uh, so once you've done, you've done adding up all of your income, which should be relatively simple, you know, employment income, maybe some child benefit support and things like that, list out your fixed costs. So by fixed costs, I mean things that you have no flexibility in. So, you know, quite often this is your rent, you know, as much as you'd love to go negotiate with your landlord at 0.1% vacancy or whatever it is, that's probably going to be a short conversation. Right. So there are certain costs that you just know you're not going to be able to reduce no matter what, you know, maybe it's childcare costs, you know, MSP, which goes away this year, but as of now, that's a fixed cost, nothing you can do about that. Yeah. So once you've listed out your fixed cost, your next step is to track your spending. And this is where most people really break down because it can get a bit tough to keep track of everything in this modern world, every transaction that we make. But a couple easy ways to do it is just for a solid month, get a receipt for everything every coffee, every transit ticket, everything like that, get a receipt, stick it in a pocket, and then nightly or weekly, just sit down, add up the receipts that you've got. That can be an easy way to do it. How scary is that for some people? It can be scary because it's actually putting into, you know, black and white, what they think they're doing, but actually it's quite different what's actually happening. Yeah. Right? So a lot of people, they figure out, oh my God, I had no idea I was spending this much, you know, coffee here or there. It actually does add up at the end of the day. Yeah. Especially if if you're one of those regular people every morning on your way, you do that. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, so tracking my spending. Yep. Now, a really important thing here is to put it in writing. So this mm-hmm. idea that, okay, I've got this budget in my head, you know, my income is 2200 my rent's 1400 so I know where I'm going to spend the rest of the money here. Until you write it down, put it in black and white, you've just got the idea of a budget. You don't actually have a budget. Fair so enough. So you really need to have something written down. And then what's hugely important is at the end of the month, you actually crunch the numbers and you look at, okay, well, did I stay within budget this month? If I overran, where did I overrun? Is it something that's going to recur? Is it a decision that I made that I should have made a different decision? Or is it something completely out of my control? And if so, we know how can I prepare for that next time? Do I even consider my credit card debt and stuff like that oh, when yeah. I'm doing my budget? Every dollar in and out. So one of your budget items for the outflow would be credit card payments. Okay. Yeah. And if it's the case that, you know, I can afford everything, but when I get to my credit card payments, there's no money left over, well, then that tends to point out that, okay, on a month-to-month basis, if you had no debt, you'd actually be living within a budget, but it's this debt hangover of things that are probably providing you no benefit anymore, but are still a drag on your finances, that points out that's the problem that you have to solve. How often should a person check their budget? I'd say every month. Every month. Yeah, at Not least. more than that? Well, a lot of people will do every two weeks or so, sometimes with their paycheck, you know, they'll update their income at that time and their expenses. 
I'm a fan of, you know, do it once a month, check in, get some, you know, big directional type of indications. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, what's another area of the, the, this process that people get stuck? Taxes. Oh. The tax man. So <laughs> oddly enough, taxes come every year, but we're not, we're not always prepared for it. And I know because there are people in my life, some people just have a psychological block for taxes. No matter if it's simple, they've got one T4, they're never going to owe the government money. Their hands start to shake when I start to say, well, you know, you could do this yourself. Fill out the forums, do it online. Some people just get really scared about any dealings with the government. And I get it. They've got all the power and we've got none. But this is one <laughs> okay. of these hoops that unfortunately it's not going away. And every year, every Canadian has to file an income tax return. And it's And there's so many ways of doing it too these days, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not just me sitting down and doing it if I don't want to. No, like what I do with my family, you know, we go to Costco, we buy the tax software for 30 bucks, you do eight returns for that, you know? Okay. A lot of time you can go to, you know, H&R Block or wherever, you know, big tax tax places, you might pay 50 to $80 for a return, but at least it's done. Uh, but a lot of ways to do it, if you're low income, you can generally do it online even for free. But the things that you miss out on if you don't file taxes are really important to know. So, you know, things like GST, HST credits. So mm-hmm. if you're low income four times a year, the government's sending you a check and if you don't file your taxes you're not getting that check and that could enough. be you know 100 to 200 dollars for some people uh canada child benefit which is just massive you know in some cases that can be over a thousand dollars for a family if they don't file their taxes or file them late they can be cut off from that benefit oh, that's so really it's incredibly important, important. yeah uh, RRSP contributions, when you file your taxes, you create contribution rooms. So you can put money away for your RRSPs for savings for retirement later in life. If you don't file, you're not creating that room and you can't put the same money right. in. Right. And CRA will tell you exactly how much you can spend. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, things like if you're trying to secure financing, whether it's a car, or a house, or even a credit card, some things like that, you often have to prove your income by showing your tax assessment. So it allows you to substantiate when you tell someone, here's the money that I made. And by the way, here's what the government has validated that, yes, I'm up to date with all my taxes and my payments. Um, I know I have a bunch of clients who are in the film industry. And a few years ago, there was a big change where all the independent contractors, they could not get hired unless they would show their tax assessment to the people hiring them. Oh, that's interesting. And that forced them all to be compliant. Before then, there was a lot of non-compliance because being self-employed, it's a little more difficult to stay up. Interesting. Why the employer would care that much, I wonder. Well, I think they were thinking, if we don't get these people on board, eventually CRA is going to come to us and say, Ah. well, these are actually your employees and maybe you should have been remitting taxes. So um, I think it was, let's regulate ourselves before the government tries to do so. But I think, yeah, more and more, I would expect self-employed people to have to really show tax assessments, show that they're up to date, perhaps even before taking on jobs. You'd want to know that your contractor is not a half a million dollars in debt to CRA or hasn't filed for 10 years, for example. No, fair enough. Is there sort of of a, um, a theory uh, of why people delay filing their tax returns? You know, a lot of it is they just think they owe money and it's better not to file. <laughs> Okay. And I can understand that, but the government generally knows more than you do. Um, and generally, they're going to know if you owe money. Yes. So if you're self-employed, if you go enough years without filing taxes, they're just going to arbitrarily assess you. They're going to say all of your bank deposits were revenue and you had no business expenses. And then you're going to have a way worse outcome than if you had actually filed that return. Fair um, so, you know, definitely if you're a self-employed person, don't delay filing taxes. And if you're an individual and you're delaying because you owe money, CRA already knows that. They've got your T4s. They know all this stuff. Um, so there's really no benefit for you delaying filing. All you're doing is essentially getting put into a non-compliant bucket of taxpayers, which generally gets collected a little bit more aggressively than the compliant bunch. Fair enough. So yeah, it's best to take action and not not just think that nobody knows what you're doing, Mm -hmm. because they do. If you want more information, 
go to Sands and Associates. You can go to their website. They've got some great questions and answers, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us from Toronto is Doug Hoyes. Uh, He's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelos & Associates, one of Canada's largest personal insolvency firms. He's got over 30 years in the business as a chartered accountant and licensed insolvency trustee. He's so great to talk to and interview because he's so knowledgeable and communicates so well. How did I do, Doug? That was excellent. Just the way I wrote it, Elaine. Thanks very much. (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, The topic for this segment is, um, are not-for-profit credit counselors really just collection agents? And um, I know I can just speak from experience, and then I'll let you guys go. Uh, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I was shocked at what I've learned uh, over the time that I've spent with Blair doing this show, Doug. So let's get right started um, at the beginning and define some of these terms. Yeah, so I'm so thrilled, Elaine, to have have Doug here and be talking about this topic, because I think it's something that folks just don't know. We're very much, you know, we believe a lot of the branding and advertising that we see. And I think on today's show, we want to kind of delve below that. When you see a not-for-profit credit counselor, what are you actually getting? Um, And I think we'll we'll correct some misconceptions as well. Um, So, Doug, I wonder if we can just ask you first, you know, let's define the term. What do we mean when we talk about a not-for-profit credit counselor? Well, I mean, a credit counselor is someone gives, who gives advice about credit, I guess, a counselor. And not-for-profit means at the end of the day, the agency isn't turning a profit. I mean, it's, it, that's, that's all it means. And really, and what I hear is they're kind of doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Well, and, and uh, I'm not going to paint anyone with a broad brush here because I have worked with many not-for-profit credit counselors over the last uh, 20 or 30 years, Yeah, and most of them are fantastic people. Lovely. And it, it, it has been great in my career to be able to, you know, someone comes into my office and what they really need is some help with budgeting, with, uh, you know, how to save money. Uh, you know, very tangible, practical things. And I'm happy to give that advice, but my area of expertise is more on the legal side with consumer proposals, bankruptcy law, all that kind of stuff. And so I am more than happy to refer them to someone who is much more expert than I in that, you know, those basic money management types of things. So I'm actually a very big supporter of not-for-profit credit counseling, provided that's what they're doing. They're meeting with someone in person and giving them practical advice. So I'm a big believer in that. Now, I mean, I think what, what you guys are getting at with your question to me is, okay, well, isn't that what they do? And the answer is every single one of us has to make a living, mm-hmm. okay? I do not work for free. My company, Hoys Michaelis, is a corporation. It's a for-profit business. I'm pretty sure Sands and Associates is also a profit-making enterprise. That's There's correct. nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm very open and upfront with my clients. Yes, this is a business you've come into. My fees, what I get paid when I do a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy, are regulated by the federal government. So I can't just decide what I'm going to charge you. It is set by the government. I get a certain percentage of what is in the pot. That's how it works. Every licensed insolvency trustee gets paid exactly the same for the exact same file. So let me get that out of the way first. I'm not saying here I'm some, you know, not-for-profit guy myself. No, I'm a business. I I make no bones about that. 
how then do I get paid? Well, when you do a proposal, I'm getting a percentage of what's being paid out to the creditors. How does a credit counselor get paid when you go in there and talk to them about budgeting? Well, they might charge you a, a, a fee, you know, a certain amount per hour, or perhaps they're getting funding from, you know, the United Way or other, you know, charitable donations. Fantastic. That's great. But that's and, and not Doug, where do you, the... Do you, see yep, that mo- do you see that model very often? Because the way we're describing things, I don't think anybody could be opposed to, you know, a community-based organization um, that provides, you know, good counseling at little to no charge. But I don't see that model very often, definitely not in well, Vancouver. That's, that's the problem. And that's mm. the problem. That Unfortunately, that's a very hard model to, to make successful because as a not-for-profit credit counseling agency, you have to pay the rent, you have to pay your staff. How can you do that if the people you're helping don't have any money? So what they have done over you know the years is they have also done other things to generate cash flow, one of them being debt management plans. And so in a debt management plan, they have an arrangement with each of the big banks and credit card companies that if you agree to pay back your debts in full, the big bank will agree to give you a break on the interest, and in return, the credit counseling agency is paid a fee for doing that. So um, they've always called it a fair share contribution or something like that, and often it's in the range of you know 15 to 20% of the money that goes back to the big bank. So that's how they generate a lot of their funding. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you're doing a job, you should get paid for it. Um, I think it's key, though, that when you go to a credit counselor, you understand specifically what they're doing. And you should also understand specifically what a licensed insolvency trustee is doing. Who is paying you? How do you get paid? What's your incentive for, for doing what you're doing? And, I mean, you should ask that of every professional you're dealing with. Uh, how, am I, how am I getting paid? Oh, I bought these mutual funds and I didn't have to pay my advisor anything. Yeah, that's because the fees are buried there. And I think that's my main point. The fees are often not completely visible, and as a result, you don't know who you're paying, what you're paying for, and therefore whose side they're on when you're uh, engaging that professional. Now, as a credit counselor, uh, is it uh, uh, is it on them to tell you when you ask that question how they are being funded? Yes, but it's on you to ask the question. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like coming on your show, because we can put these questions in people's mind. I have no problem at all when someone sits in my desk and says, sits at my desk and says, hey, how are you getting paid? What's in it for you? Right. I'm, I'm more than happy to answer that question. My concern is that some of these big agencies have made it sound like, well, we're not for profit, you know, we're, we're here for the good of humanity. Oh, by the way, all of our funding comes from the banks or a vast majority of our funding comes from the banks. Okay, well, if the vast majority of your funding comes from the banks, then doesn't that mean you are somewhat beholden to what the banks want you to do? Absolutely. So if, if I may, <laughs> yeah. somewhat, okay, you know, I'm, I'm couching my words here. I don't want you getting sued You're here. You're being Blair. very diplomatic. Yeah, and, and so if I'm going to run a seminar about how to use credit cards, am I going to stand up there and say to people, you know what, you shouldn't use them? because the interest rate is really high and they're maybe not a great deal for borrowing? Well, no, because my funding is coming from a big bank. I may be a little reluctant to say that. Sure. So I think you have to know how someone is getting paid. Now, people are going to listen to this and say, yeah, okay, Doug Royce, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth because it's the bank who's paying you too. So, uh, you know, you're, you're criticizing someone but doing the same thing yourself. Well, no. When you no. file a consumer proposal, you're the one writing the checks to me and I'm distributing that money. 
in a not-for-profit credit counseling agency that's doing a debt management plan, the bank is actually contributing back to them. It is a it is a different relationship. And again, our fees are set by the government, so there is no bias here. I'm not the one who's determining what I'm getting paid. Okay. And, and Doug, we wanted to talk about how credit counselors might be akin to collection agents. And so let's spend a minute, you know, what's a collection agent? You know, for my simple mind, and obviously being in the industry here, you know, a bank hires a collection agency to get the money back from you to collect on the debt. So what, yeah, what would be your it's definition? Someone who, it's someone who collects debt on behalf of someone else. Mm-hmm. And so simple as that. what's the similarity there between a credit counselor and a collection agent? Well, I mean, in Ontario, and I believe it's the same in British Columbia, a someone doing a debt management plan has to be registered under the Collection Agencies Act or whatever it's called in, in each individual prov- uh, province. So legally, they are collecting debts. They are debt collectors. Now, they're not the same as a collection agency. I mean, let, let's not you know, overstate the case that, uh, you know, the, the guy who's collecting that old cell phone bill and is harassing you 15 times a day and is threatening to garnish your wages, that's not the same as a not-for-profit credit counselor. But they are collecting the money and then forwarding it on to the banks. As opposed to in a consumer proposal where we are making a settlement with the banks and remitting to them the net amount. So in a debt management plan, you're paying back 100 cents on the dollar. There's no negotiating to be done, whereas in a consumer proposal, it's in most cases much less than 100 cents on the dollar. So I think that's where the the distinction lies. And Doug, you mentioned some of the different provincial legislations, and I have to tell you, BC is completely, from my perspective, asleep at the switch here, um, because I was just just flabbergasted when I saw Ontario's consumer protection or consumer registries there, which say, you know, if you want to see if someone's a collection agency, you basically put in the name, there's a registry, and you can figure it out. Um, And any credit counseling firm that you see, even BC-based organizations that operate in Ontario, they're forced to register as collection agents in Ontario. So that was where I first got the thought about this. I'm like, wow, if they're registered as collection agents, isn't that what they're doing. The province of BC has no such requirements. So if you try to figure out who are the collection agents in BC, you you won't find that information easily accessible. So the number of clients that I sit down with when I say, you know, um, the advertising that you've seen for not-for-profit credit counselors, just be a little bit careful because of the funding model and the fact that other provinces have caused them to register just based on the conduct of of what they're doing. So I think it's customers having their eyes wide open. I totally, totally agree. And again, you hit the nail on the head here, the funding model. The problem is I think credit counselors perform a very valuable function, and I would love to go back to to the days where they were in person, you could actually meet with them face-to-face, they could help you with your budget, give you all this advice, but the problem is they can't do it because no one's paying for it, and so they have to resort to taking money from the banks that perhaps they would otherwise not like to do. So I would like to see changes at the federal level where we find a way to fund not-for-profit credit counselors who aren't, you know, collecting for the banks, but who are helping individual people. That's what I would like to see. Um, And I think that would be better for everyone. It would certainly be better for the credit counseling agencies, because I think that's what they want to do. They should specialize in education and helping people. But the problem is it costs money to do that. So, I mean, that would be a whole nother show on, on how that could possibly happen. But I think there are ways that funding could be provided to not-for-profit credit counseling agencies to do credit counseling as opposed to simply being debt collectors. The one thing that I was going to, I wanted to ask is, are there more of each today than there were 10 years ago? I mean, because you are two guys who are in the business who see what's going on on a regular basis. 
What do you think? What, what I see, if I'm understanding your correct question correctly, is in the old days, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, there were a ton of small, locally-based credit counseling agencies. So in every small town in Ontario, in every large town and city, there was a not-for-profit credit counseling agency. I knew the people there. I could send people there for, for counseling. Today, most of those agencies have been absorbed into the three or four big agencies that are almost national in scope. So if you want to talk to a credit counselor, it's much more likely you're going to be talking to someone over the phone, and their primary goal is to help you, but also to fund their operations with a debt management plan. And again, I'm painting everyone with the same brush here. There are still lots of credit counselors who will meet with you in person and provide good advice, but they are becoming much larger in scope. And uh, there's a lot more stuff being done over the phone as opposed to face-to-face because that's the only cost-effective way to do it. Excellent. We've been talking with Doug Hoyes, who's the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelos and Associates uh, in Toronto. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. For information on any of the services that uh, uh, Sands and Associates looks after, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So, common myths and misconceptions that we have about debt. And it's, you know, historically, the debt was like having debt you know, there was a debtor's prison. Yeah. It just wasn't something that was tolerated in society. It in, was an, an aberration, was to yeah. be in debt. It was not typical, no. right? No. And that's, I think, you know, about my parents, and that's sort of how the era that, not that they grew up in that era, <laughs> but that got handed down, right? Yeah. And, yeah. And the statistics show that, you know, if you look at, you know, per capita consumer debt, it was so low until about the 70s, 80s or so. And it's, my God, it's been a hockey stick in the last 10, 15 years. Um, I don't know anybody in my personal or professional life that doesn't have a credit card. You know, it just seems like it's what you need to function. You try to pay for parking. If you're on a plane, you want to buy food, you need a credit card. That's right. Um, So we've been, you know, just gently pushed into this, this, you know, electronic payment type of a system. And a lot of that comes along with just normalizing this idea of, you know, having a little bit of debt isn't too bad. It's an investment but it's really not a typical thing throughout human history, for sure. And even normalizing having a lot of debt is standard. Yeah. You know, if you're buying a house or a condo or whatever, yeah, having that mortgage, well... Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's the good it. debt. Buy as much as you can, as quick as you can, because it's only going to go up, right? Yeah, exactly. Where have we heard that before? Ooh. We'll see how it ends. <laughs> so you talk to lots of people who need mm-hmm. help and guidance and advice. Uh, let's look at some of the misunderstood facts. Yeah, some yeah. of the big myths. So I think we got five of them today, you know, the top five myths that people tend to still hang on to uh, about debt. And, you know, some of them are, you know, may not apply to you, but at least I'm sure there's a couple here. You'd be like, oh, I can see how that might apply. It might help me in a situation. Okay, so what's the first one? So the first one is that creditors can always sue you for a debt. So the idea here is that if you owe money, you're always going to owe this money. And if you don't pay it, um, you could potentially be sued at any point for the rest of your life. You've got an obligation. If you don't satisfy it, you're going to be in trouble. Um, At some point, someone could come and basically make you pay by taking you to court. And that's not true? That is not true. Like many things in life, there is a statute of limitations for debts. And it's very misunderstood and not well known. And sometimes these are my happiest meetings with folks when I can say, hey, that debt, you know, from 10 years ago that you're really worried about, there's no legal way you could ever be forced to pay it. 
big sigh of relief. You mean I can never be sued? That's exactly what I'm saying. So what the BC Limitations Act says is it sets out a two-year basic limitation period. So what that means is two years after the date a debt was incurred, two years after the date the last payment against it was made, or two years after the last written acknowledgement of the debt, the person who owes the money, if those two years pass, the limitation period kicks in, which means that debt cannot be pursued in a court of law for payment. Okay. So what this means is if someone is sitting there with, you know, let's say a big credit card bill that they know they're never going to be able to pay off in full, um, and they've sat down or not sat down, they've talked to the collection agent and the collection agent said, you know, just make me some good faith payments here. You haven't paid for the last year and a half, you know, pay me $10 next month, $20 the month after, you know, I want to work with you. I know you're a good person, so on and so forth. Person might think, well, that's just great. The bank is excellent. They're working with me. Let's let's try to move forward. 10 or $20 is not going to move the needle at all in any significant part of a, part of a debt. But what it does do is it resets that clock back on the two-year statute of limitations. So my advice to somebody is if you've got a debt and it's approaching two years since you've last made a payment on it, think long and hard about it. whether you make a partial payment. If you know you're not going to be able to pay the debt off in full, you'd feel a lot better protected if you know the two-year statute of limitations has elapsed. And what kind of thinking do you have to do in order to decide, no, it's not worth paying or it is worth paying? You know, I think it'd be a case of, can you see yourself paying this debt off in the next two or three years? Okay. So, you know, reasonably, okay, I haven't paid it for a little bit, but I know I'm starting a new job next month. I know I've got a bonus coming in. I know I'm going to be able to clear this debt. Okay, well then don't, don't worry about it. But if it's the case, you know, I don't see the runway for me clearing this debt in any appreciable uh, period of time. And I've actually missed a bunch of payments on this right now. It's approaching the two-year period. Make yourself aware that the limitations period after two years gives you extra protection, uh, which again means that you can't be sued for the debt. Okay. Um, Are all debts covered by that? Uh, limitation period? No, I'm happy you mentioned that, Elaine. So not all debts. So generally unsecured consumer debts. So this is things like, you know, credit cards, um, lines of credit, personal loans in between individuals, things like that would be covered. Um, Things like government debts, Canada Revenue Agency debts for, you know, taxes or for student loans, there's no statute of limitations. So if you owe the government money, there's no waiting them out. Now, it's also the case if a creditor has sued you. So if they've already taken you to court and they've gotten a judgment against you, the two-year limitation period doesn't apply. And okay. That's really minor. Creditors threaten to sue everybody, but they actually sue one in 10,000. So I'd be surprised that's many people's situation, but that is the case. And then the last category here, as we as we hit on sometimes, is things like child support, spousal support. Those can never be, um, no statute of limitations, they can be never be reduced or eliminated through this. Okay. So second myth about debt, dealing with government debts. Yeah. So the myth How is that, that there's no forgiveness for government debt. And that sounds logical, right? You, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, if you owe the tax man money, they've got the right to, you know, hound you at the ends of the earth. There's no Absolutely. way you can ever get out from that. And I think a lot of that comes from, we get a lot of our news from the United States where that is the case. If you go into bankruptcy okay. in the U.S. and you owe the government money, whether it's income taxes or for student loans, which is very, very concerning to me, um, you go through a bankruptcy, that debt survives out the other side. You can't get rid of it. Okay. Canada is the complete opposite. So whatever amounts are owing to the government, uh, if it's income tax, for example, it's treated the same as every other debt if you do a bankruptcy or a proposal. Now, if it's an egregious amount of income tax, if we're talking millions of dollars or you know more than $200,000, generally there's going to be some questions asked and investigations understanding how did it get to this, this point. But if it's all you know just an honest but unfortunate situation, absolutely income tax debt can be discharged, which means eliminated through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. And the key is there, it's got to be done with a licensed insolvency trustee. You are the only people yep. that can 
negotiate with the government exactly. to make that change. That's right. So you got to come through a licensed insolvency. Trustees do either of those remedies. Yes. Uh, with student loans, a little bit different. They can still be eliminated, but the government wants you to go out and try to earn income after you've graduated. So you've got to wait seven years from when you were last a student. If you do a bankruptcy or a proposal after seven years, the debt is the same as every other debt. It's eliminated. All right. So government debts from business operations. Mm-hmm. You talked about that. So what's the what's the myth in connection with that? Yeah, so sometimes the myth is, you know, I've incorporated a company and I did that to limit my liability. So if this company right. owes the government some money, I don't owe the government the money is because I own the, own the company and I'm the director. And unfortunately, that is a myth um, that there are some liabilities. If you incorporate a company and that company has some liabilities to the government, it's not the case that all of those liabilities will die with the company if you shut the company down. So some really important ones, if you're the director of a corporation and the corporation owes money to the government for GST, for example, you as the director owe that money dollar for dollar regardless of whether the business pays it. So if the business can't pay it, you have to pay it. If the business does pay it, obviously there's no debt anymore. Right. But GST is big. Payroll remittances. So if you're paying your staff through the corporation and you're not remitting the CPP, EI, income tax, all of that, um, dollar for dollar, the director of the corporation is on the hook for those amounts. Um, Unpaid wages to employees. So if you promise you're going to pay your staff and the business has to shut down and not pay them, the director is on the hook for those obligations. And then the last one is just any debts where you've signed a personal guarantee. So when you put your name on the dotted line saying, if the business can't pay, I agree to pay as well, well, then obviously you've contracted into that liability. So incorporating a business can be a great idea for certain situations but it's not a catch-all that eliminates all of your personal liabilities and certainly not your government liabilities. You've got to be careful. If you've got a corporation with some government debt, as a director, you could have that liability for yourself. Okay, so you really need to talk to somebody who knows at that point. Exactly. Can read the, all the small print. Yeah, and what you might decide too is, well, if I'm going to owe all this money anyway, let's keep my life more simple and just be a proprietor. And sometimes that's actually a smart decision. It's way more simple, easy, and cheaper. Okay. Can we go to the last myth? Because yeah. I think that we've just got about a minute left in Certainly. this. So, the last common myth that you want to bring up mm-hmm. is about your, and this is a question I bet you get all the time, all the time. spouse's debts. Yeah, so I'm responsible for my spouse's debt, right? You know, so I married the you know person, and the person's got a bunch of debt. We've got to pay that off together, right? And if I don't pay it, um, then my spouse is going to be responsible. All of those things. People think that a debt gets shared once you become married, and there's nothing could be further from the truth. So there's no change in status if you marry somebody. So if I have a credit card debt and I become married, that credit card company could never collect from my wife, no matter what. If we divorced, if we stayed together, if she's got all the assets, if I've given her a bunch of money, they can't go to my wife. They can only go to the person who's on basically the credit card statement. So couples should be very careful if they've got a debt problem that one partner deals with it, that the other person doesn't transfer all the assets to pay it off in full because they don't have to do that. It's a separate obligation for each partner. Uh, If you want more details, certainly he's the guy to talk to. Sands and Associates, that's where he is. Uh, If you want more information, you can go to their website, sands-trustee.com or better yet, give them a call. 1-800-661-3030. Get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. 
I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms. <laughs> 